0: I'm delighted to be able to take this text here this morning, and uh, let's start with, uh, let me pray as we get started here. Uh, Father, as we come together uh, in, in the name of your Son, who is really the focus of what we'll talk about this morning. We're so thankful for the grace and mercy that you offer us through Jesus, and we pray that in our time of reflection here this morning, we would uh, grow closer to you. Uh, through Jesus, by your spirit, may your word have its impact in our hearts and our lives. I need your help, Lord. I, I uh, declare that real. Uh, I'm always uh, aware of um, how rich your word is and how difficult it is at times to know how to communicate effectively and affectively your heart. So we pray for that this morning. And for hearts that are open and responsive here, Lord, may you awaken us more to, to more of who you are. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I don't know about you all, but it's, it, I see there's some asks out here, but it's nice to know it's no longer a state requirement. Wow. Uh, and it's interesting how the two years have gone by here where we've had the... Um, COVID plague upon us. I used to travel with my ministry uh, with uh, Barnabas uh, International probably four to five times uh, a year overseas, mostly in Europe. And uh, so for two years, I came back in March uh, 2020 on my last trip from, uh, from Serbia where I did, did a ministry there, teaching ministry there, and have not traveled overseas since then. So I'm now just booking a flight to Poland, and guess what? Lots of excitement in Poland. The church that I'll be visiting there uh, will have lots of Ukrainian refugees, and uh, our hearts go out to the people in that part of the world. What a difficult time it is. And it it makes me uh, recognize how much, uh, as we watch the news, we can live by fear or we can live by faith. We can have things going on in life that make us a little bit afraid, or we can live by faith. And we can have fear and faith, I know that. But the reality is that we're on one trajectory or another. We're walking into faith, or we're walking, still living with fear. And I want us just to know that personally, this is the invitation of the morning to live by faith, not by fear. And, uh, and yet there are, there are stumbles along the way. I called my sister yesterday to see how I hadn't heard from them for a while. And she said, <coughs> I've got breakthrough COVID. So she's just wheezing and hacking uh, about 10 days into it. And her husband came down with it. Both of them had their vaccinations and all the rest. So. Um, and then it turns out I'll be flying out uh, here just over a week to uh, Chicago, and I'll be visiting with a cousin who just lost her husband to COVID, to a long battle with COVID that turned into pneumonia took his life. So, I mean, there's just lots of things that have been... Has it felt like a disrupted couple of years at all? Oh, man. And I think... um, this text for this morning is, uh, is to people who have been disrupted. When you think about the response of the, the uh, early church to uh, Jesus emerging, and they're saying, this is the Christ for sure. This is the Son of God who's come, and he's going to take us forward into the future. And their faith is forming around Jesus and what he has to offer, and then he gets crucified. Okay, fear and faith, what's going on there? Uh, Do you think they were a little bit afraid when they ran for cover? Uh, The disciples, even the faithful disciples, you you know, there was a lot of fear going on there. And um, how to to deal with the issues of death when you think Jesus had come to conquer, he in fact died. But the good news is, we get to celebrate this in Easter, I'll be in Poland at Easter, so it'll be an interesting time for me. That's the celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. And that's what we want to keep in mind. The big picture, the smaller picture. The smaller picture is where we tend to live by fear. The bigger picture, as Christians, is the reminder that we get to live by faith. And so, uh, as we look at the text this morning, uh, we see that Peter and John were released from the Jerusalem hearing before the religious leaders. And the next morning, they're together. And as they gather together, they're ready to pray And included in this prayer is a psalm, a reference to Psalm 2. They refer to the first part of Psalm 2, which is a crucial psalm for spiritual life, both then and now. And so we'll take a look, probably look as much at Psalm 2 as we will at the text here, because that's what this text points us to. So uh, let me just read to you um, the text that we have for this morning. When they were released, they went to their friends, so this is in Jerusalem, and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them the day before. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and and said, so here's the prayer. We don't know who's praying. Our guess is it's probably Peter because he's been the vocal one, the voice in this, uh, this early period of time in the church. And here's the prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth. Now, that's a pretty broad picture, isn't it? We're talking about a bigger picture, smaller picture. He starts with the big picture. Who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, by the Holy Spirit. And by the way, the Holy Spirit has a big role to play in the book of Acts. And he's just saying, we have just had a hard time yesterday, and given the fact of who you are, and our forefather David, and the fact that he wrote about all of this a thousand years ago by the Holy Spirit, we're starting to get the bigger picture here that is part of this prayer. And let, let me continue with, you're saying, come on, just read the Bible, Ron. Um, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why do the Gentiles rage? Now, what's a Gentile? I spent a year in Israel and they kept talking about you, goi, you goyim. Well, that means just of the peoples, of the nations, uh, a Gentile. So I was a Gentile. We are mostly Gentiles here. I don't know if anyone has Jewish heritage, but uh, the rest, rest of us are Goyim, Gentiles. Uh, so they're part of this uh, psalm. Why did the uh, Gentiles rage and the peoples, that's just another way of saying Gentiles, plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. It says here anointed, but that's what the word, uh, you know, to, to uh, become a king, you would pour oil over the head of the person that's going to be made the king. And that anointing, that ointment, being poured on the head, that is what we call um, christening, and that's where we get the word Christ from. Uh, The Hebrew word for that is uh, to anoint is Mashiach, and so that's where we get the word Messiah. So you'll hear the word Messiah, Christ is the Messiah, Christ Jesus is Jesus is the Christ, it's the same thing, same word, two different languages. And so this is who we have here. Uh, The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you, here's the word again, anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, Now, Herod was kind of a half-Jew with a kind of a questionable background in terms of racial progression. And certainly Pontius Pilate was straight from Rome. This was not a Jew. And so when we talk about the nations, the rulers, uh, being opposed to the anointed one, uh, that would be these people, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That's the end of the prayer. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of the Lord with boldness. Okay, So clearly they had moved from fear to faith, and that faith was represented by their boldness. So as we look at this passage, it's just good to remember that we are in days when at times we feel like the world's a little out of control, and if we're right... We're not reassured of that as we go into the world and sit in a Starbucks or watch television or do whatever it is. The world is ready to tell us that we're wrong in most of what we think and most of what we do. And that's the question. Do we live by fear or by faith in a world that is post-Christian? That's a fancy word for saying we used to have more orientation towards Christianity than we have now. But now it's just written off. By and large, Christianity is just a subgroup, a sect in the view of most of the people with whom we live. And so the question is how do we live with a a world that is relatively hostile towards the faith, the beliefs that we hold? And uh, it's a good context because today I think we're closer to that than ever before. So let's remember why they were praying. They had uh, just faced uh, uh, Peter and John, the highest spiritual figures of the day, and basically they were unhappy with having this group of uneducated men. Here's what it says here. Now, they saw when they saw the boldness, that's a word we keep coming back to here, of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and that's a strong word. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what is it that characterized uh, these two men that had just come out of a hearing where they were being blasted by the religious authorities. They were ordinary plain people. And they had people who had strong education, strong standing, and were, who were viewed as the pillars of the community, the strong figures of the community. And they had just been blasted by them. And the ruling was that they had been given. They, uh, verse uh, going back to 418, they called them and charged them not to speak nor teach at all in the name of Jesus, we know that Peter and John just said, "Well, whether it's right to uh, in the sight of God uh, to listen to you or to listen to God, well you can you can judge that yourselves. So they weren't intimidated. And so here we are a day later after they've been held, uh, they're released, and now they're in the face of this opposition, ready to come and meet together, and they have this prayer. So uh, we could I would call that the as the psalm that they cited says uh, Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against God's anointed one. They are recognizing that this Psalm of David from 1,000 years earlier was exactly aligned with this particular moment. That here they had their devotion to Jesus Christ and they were finding themselves absolutely opposed by those people who were the spiritual leaders of the day and being told to shut up and go home and stay quiet. Okay, well, why didn't they, by the way? Because of Easter, because of the resurrection. See, they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. They were terrified, and then Jesus showed up again, raised from the dead, and spent 40 days with them hanging out, talking to them, reassuring them. And in fact, here's the piece that I want to put in the background, and we're going to talk about the immediate picture, the bigger picture. The bigger picture is, did God have in mind that Jesus should die? Was this part of God's plan, or was it an accident? And then Jesus, after he dies, they have to do a patch-up plan. Well, what can we do? Oh, let's raise him from the dead. At least we can do that much. Or was it the purpose of God to have Jesus die and in his dying to fulfill what Isaiah 25 and Isaiah 53 had said and other passages that reassure us that it was necessary that he die and that in his death, he swallows death and he breaks the power of death because death couldn't hold him. He's the author of life, as it said earlier on in this in, the, in Acts. You put to death the author of life and death couldn't hold him. And so that's why these bold uneducated fishermen are ready to take on the big wigs of the day who had their PhDs and who knows how many other degrees to intimidate them and to tell them to sit down and be quiet. And they refuse to do that. So with that as context, we go on and we see there's even more to this than we recognize that Jesus is God's beloved anointed one. And this is a heart-based rendition of God disclosing himself through David by the Holy Spirit and that the disciples here a thousand years later are taking this psalm and saying, isn't this great that we don't have to be intimidated in light of who God is? So... We find that Psalm 2 expressed God's ambition to offer his son to humanity. And there are two basic responses to Jesus as the Messiah, as the anointed one. We can either respond to him or we can rage against him. We can either uh, rejoice and delight in him, including his death, his burial, because of the resurrection. We know that's not the end of things. And to know that he's now seated at the right hand of the Father awaiting our arrival, and that's the big picture. Or we can be fearful and have a response of resistance and reluctance. So that's the question we always have before us. And that's where this particular text is so encouraging to me. They go to Psalm 2 and say, it's this passage, this truth from 1,000 years ago that we're anchoring our confidence 3,000 years ago for us today, that everything is in order. Nothing is out of order. I don't care what's going on in Ukraine. I don't care what's going on anywhere in the world. I don't care what's going on in the United States. I do not care what's going on in the news. I may pay attention to it, but I come to it with the certainty that all is well. All is well. And we can have all the confidence in the world and speak boldly to a world that wants to intimidate us and to, to have us shut up and be quiet and go away. Well, we don't have to. And so here we have this Psalm 2 comes along and tells us that all is in order. The Jews and the Gentiles are both engaged, and the evidence that God is for us in, in Jesus Christ is undeniable. And that's where we find the text that's interesting. He says in this passage, uh, uh, For truly in this day, uh, in this city, they were gathered against uh, your holy servant Jesus Uh, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, the rulers who are both foreign and and local, um, uh, that opposition, that hatred, that rage, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Now, a lot of us may not like the word predestination. You know, uh, uh, (laughs) there's the bad joke about the Presbyterian predestinarian pastor. Who stumbled at the top of a flight of stairs and fell to the bottom, got himself up and dusted himself off. I'm glad that's over with. <laughs> Never mind, it's a theological joke. <laughs> the idea that predestination is some club to beat on people. The point here is that God is in control, In a 1,000 years before Jesus was crucified, God knew all about it. He knew the nations would rage against him. He said, this is my plan. That's fine. I'm going to conquer death by surprising the enemy, the author of death, and going into his lair, breaking the power of death, and then taking a host of captives captive to come and be with me. So the resurrection required the death to achieve that drawing out of those of us who have tasted death, now repent and say, I don't want any more of it. I've tasted rebellion and I don't want any more of it. God forbid that I should sin against you. So the question of response or rebellion, resistance, reluctance, or devotion and delight, that's before us. And the bigger picture is delight in God because he wins in the end. We know that everything turns out well in the end. And that's what they're doing here in this prayer. Even though they were, the day before uh, the rulers attempted to intimidate them, to make them be quiet, to go away, they just flat refused. And so in the midst of all of this, they say, It's all been predestined, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Now, what had they been told the day before? You are not to talk about Jesus anymore. And they said, well, that's a decision we have to make, and we're going to go with God. And they spoke the word boldly. Now, it's interesting. I, uh, just let me pull aside from my talking here and talk. I was at a place called Starbucks yesterday. Any of you, uh, the, the Riverstone Starbucks there, down there by QFC? 192nd, I'm there probably two or three times a week, okay? And there's a bunch of mature guys who are just sitting there rambling, talking in circles again and again and again, saying much of the same things, ranting against. They're mostly lean to the left rather than to the right, and they're against everyone. And they certainly, they know that I'm the token Christian who is not afraid to come and sit with them. Sure enough, that happened yesterday. I, I was doing writing a blog and working away, and uh, they know me as Ron. Ron, come, on, come and join us. So I sat down with them and, and chatted with them for about a half hour. Hey, you're religious, uh, you're, 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 a, you're a preacher. Yeah, okay. And I had a chance to talk to them, and guess what? I wasn't shy to talk about my faith in Jesus Christ. I talked to them about the, 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 uh, Putin and his addiction to the love of power, the love of wisdom, that is being clever, and uh, the love of might and uh, wealth, that he uses all of the wealth and wisdom and power that he has right now to try and achieve his will and, and the war that's going on right now. So I was able to just say, you know, the problem is that he doesn't know that God is a God of loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. And lacking those qualities, you can't take wealth, wisdom, and power and use it properly until you actually have a view of God that's sound and recognize that God is a relational God. So again, I'm talking to this bunch of pagans. They're looking at, you "Oh, know, that's the preacher. There he is talking once again about his preaching stuff. But you see, we've got to speak boldly when we get our chances. We, we, we've got to be salt and light in a world that's just so desperately dark. How do we do that? And the answer is by coming to the Lord of the resurrection, the one who died, was buried, and is raised, and not to be intimidated by a world that doesn't believe in him, that has their backs fully turned on him, and say, yeah, no, I believe in him. Not to be sitting there beating a pulpit, and, you know, they know that I won't get heavy-handed with him. I'll say things, and I'll love him and walk away when the time has come, comes. But I think that's the the piece of being engaged with people is a critical piece. Do we like them? Do we like the people we're with? Do we care for them? And do we feel sorry that they don't understand the reality of who Jesus is? And I think that's part of what what we get from this morning's text, that there's this recognition that God is at work and nothing is there to worry us. Now, what I want to do is uh, take this uh, Psalm 2 and press it a little farther, um, just to recognize that, There's more to that psalm. And here's a key to understanding how we read the Bible. If there's ever a citation of a text, uh, the readers of that day, the listeners of that day would know the whole text. They would go to the synagogues. They'd listen to scriptures. They were much better as audible learners than we are today. Uh, They would listen and recognize full sections of scripture. So it was like a drawer handle to mention the first three verses Two verses of this psalm. They would have known the rest of the psalm. So, for our sake, let me just read the rest of the psalm. You may know it too, but let me remind us of what the rest of the psalm has to say. Why do the nations rage? Psalm 2, and the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, the anointed one, saying, And here's where it really starts to become explicit. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. That's another name for Jerusalem. And I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son, today I've begotten you. This speaks of Jesus coming and being birthed in a human form, though he'd lived from eternity with the Father. Ask me and I will make the nations your heritage. and the ends of the earth, your possession. That's the bigger picture. Who's going to own everything in the end? The answer is Jesus Christ. Everything was made, we go to Colossians, everything was made through him and for him. And in him, everything holds together. That's who wins in the end. That's the bigger picture. And so this, the proverb go, this psalm goes on. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So let me just take a couple of elements out of that psalm. First of all, the idea that God is not overwhelmed and just saying, oh, I wish they'd behave. Oh, I wish they'd behave. Instead, there's this recognition that I'm going to draw out for myself those who will kiss the sun. And the rest are going to look very foolish in the end for having ignored willfully that which I've offered. Let me read another passage that I think is critical to kind of get this bigger picture. I'm going to go to Romans and just see how this unfolded, this understanding that God ultimately is in charge. And even if in the immediate moment you can be intimidated by local forces, local people, local circumstances, the bigger picture sets us free. And here's the bigger picture as Paul paints it in Romans chapter 1. I'll just read it here, picking it up in verse 16. And once again, we get a picture of God as the touchstone for understanding reality. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So there's a battle going on in the world today. The truth and the lie. That which is true, that which is not true. Have you ever noticed? Do you ever watch the news and say, boy, that's just not true. That's a lie. And that's been going on for a few years. And as we recognize that, we have those people who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth for that which can be known about God is plain to them. So the ultimate issues of truth and falsity have to do with who God is and what he represents. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. In other words, as we watch all the television, which is so post-Christian now about the brilliance of nature as I watch OPB's nature programs. It's just, oh, oh look at this order, this organization, this, this intelligence. And the answer is yeah, and you don't get it, do you? That there's an intelligent one behind the intelligence that you're celebrating. And in your folly, you've actually started to look very foolish even though the world is just saying, oh, we've we've won. We don't have to have a God because we can understand all of these things without the presence of the living God. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that that have been made. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were dark, and claiming to be wise, they became fools." So that we get this, God not laughing in a disparaging fashion, but God just, oh, to say, shaking his head and just saying, oh, you foolish people. He goes on and says, uh, because they exchanged the truth about God for, it's interesting, the text here says a lie, but it's ultimately uh, in the underlying Greek, the lie. And it's interesting that the translators, uh, even though this takes place about three or four times in the New Testament, it's a singular particle, the article, the lie is used, and they'll turn it into a more falsehood or a lie. Uh, But they'll talk about the truth. Um, And I think it's good to, to recognize that the truth about God is that Jesus Christ is the Lord, and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord. That's the truth. And what's the lie? Let's go back to Genesis 3. You can be like God. You can displace God. You can come up with systems of teaching and and belief that ignore God and act as if he doesn't exist. So worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So ultimately, that's what's going on here in Psalm 2. And this thing of kiss the sun, I'm going to go ahead and just suggest a broader picture of what's going on here. I think God is ultimately looking for the father, I think I referred to this already, looking for a bride for the son. So you take the passage of, let us make man in our image, male and female, he created them. Then it says, a man shall leave his father and his mother, that's in chapter 2, 24. A man shall leave his father and his mother, and the two shall become one, one flesh. Okay, the the inaugural message of uh, marriage Paul then picks that up in, in Ephesians chapter 5, 30, 31, 32, somewhere in there. and He says that's a great passage. He says talking about Christ and the church and the big ambition of Christ is that he should have the bride, the church, as his bride, and that the church should be holy and blameless, washed with the water of the word. That's what he has. And then what do we have in the book of Revelation at the end, the wedding feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb? That you could, in effect, say the ultimate arc of biblical content is a marriage of the son with the anointed, uh, the anointed one, with his bridal group. Now, for a guy, you know, throw out all the gender issues, throw out all the sexual issues. It's the issue of mutual devotion. It's the issue of complete love and delight that that's what God is drawing out for himself, a people from the crowds who rage against him, a people who will respond to him, who are prepared to kiss the sun. That's what this psalm is about. And so what do we have in Jerusalem? We have the group of people who are prepared to kiss the sun. And with that reality, that prayer uh, concludes with this sense of, um, God, would you please, would you please give us the boldness to continue on. Grant us to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name. Remember, they just healed the man who was uh, lame from birth after 40 years. You're doing these things, Lord Jesus, uh, through us and we're delighted. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit who is the bond of our life with Christ. If we are born again, if we have Jesus Christ as our Lord, that's where our boldness comes from. That's where our ability to stand with God and say, even if the world rages against us, that's fine. We know that you're not upset with that, Father, and neither are we. We'll rest assured that all is well, and we will speak with boldness. So they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak with boldness, the word with boldness. So today, what do we do? Live by fear of faith. In a post-Christian world, are we relying on the spirit, praying for boldness? And I think we can do this if we have a much bigger picture than most of us live with. Much, as much as we are uh, intimidated, if we would be, could be by all the stuff that goes on around us, we can tend to be quiet and shy and beaten down feeling like everyone else is more educated and brighter than we are. But what do we do with this group of Galilee fishermen? We're going to stand with God. We're going to be bold because he's raised from the dead his son, the anointed one, and we're prepared to kiss the Son, And we can hardly wait for a day to come. The bigger picture is the key to living by faith. So today I want to just close with prayer this section and ask that all of us would be able to live by more faith than ever before. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you sent the Son and that all of this was purposed beforehand. This was your plan. And this group of disciples, having gone through that intimidating process of being with the rulers of the day and their time and being told to be quiet, refused to be quiet. They were bold and they stood with you and by your Holy Spirit were able to make a difference in a world that didn't believe in you. And I pray, Father, that we would have that courage and that boldness this week. May we lift you and delight in you and respond to you with fullness of hearts that will just reflect how great you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.